0: Against the backdrop of the Great Depression, John Dillinger rose as one of America's most salacious and flamboyant gangsters of the 1930s, becoming a household name idolized by many. Dillinger and his gang's epic tale of prison breaks, bank jobs, and brotherhood became first class entertainment for the American public. Still, it's easy to see him for what he was, a hardened criminal So what's the true story behind the legend? A born villain destined for organized crime or a wayward youth who stumbled into infamy? This is John Dillinger Part Three, Public Enemy Number One. It's spring, 1934. John Dillinger Sr nearly 70 years old, smokes his pipe on the porch of his Mooresville, Indiana farmhouse. It's dark out in the fields that stretch beyond. The sound of crickets soothes the man as he settles back in his rocking chair, when he hears a branch crack in the distance, disturbing the rhythmic hum of the night. Dillinger Sr. calls out, Hello? He grabs his shotgun, which lies against the wall. He cocks it for good measure. Don't shoot, comes a cry from the darkness. A figure steps out from the distant trees walking toward the house. Dillinger Sr. stands and aims his rifle. When finally, the man steps into the faint porch light Dillinger Sr.'s face falls. Johnny! He says in an exhale. He puts down his shotgun and runs as best he can to embrace his son. Johnny hugs his dad. Then, standing back to look him in the eyes, he says, I got a girl, too. Her name is Billy. Johnny looks behind him and outsteps a beautiful woman from the darkness. With a polite smile, she introduces herself as Billy Frechette. Dillinger Sr. takes a beat, makes a decision, and then he opens his arms and embraces Billy as if she were his own daughter. They parked the car in the barn so it wouldn't be seen. They can't stay long. Johnny carries a pair of suitcases into the house one of which contains a loaded machine gun. He just wanted to let his father know that he's all right. Johnny and Billy take a seat by his father on the porch. How do you do it? Dillinger Sr. asks his son as he offers him a smoke from his pipe. How do you get out? Johnny tells his dad of his escape from Crown Point how he carved the fake gun out of wood from a washboard. He used a razor blade. It was slow and painful work. Dillinger Sr. smiles from ear to ear, proud of his son, and he lets him go on. I realized that the only way out was to gull the guards, Johnny says with a smile. I simply put on the charm, I fed them a lot of soft talk, and they fell for it. I joked and wisecracked with them. I patted them on the back and told them what fine fellows they were. All jailers like soft talk. It puffs them up, and the Crown Point jailers were no exception. Johnny laughs and explains that he volunteered to carry the Slop jars of human waste every day So it made it impossible for the guards to see him as a celebrity Or a public enemy Then, when he pulled the wooden gun The guards were at their most vulnerable That's my boy Dillinger Sr. says as he rocks and gazes out into the distance Johnny goes on I'm telling you that uh, once I changed from docile prisoner into a supposedly armed desperado, they were all like sheep. The gentle hum of the night swells as silence settles between Johnny and his father. They rock in their chairs, once again, side by side. Then Johnny takes Billy's hand. All three of them look out into the night, gazing at the peaceful farmland. Eventually, Johnny breaks the silence. There is no road back, Dad. I've set my course, and I'm going to follow it to the end. Johnny takes his father's hand, squeezes it tightly, and then continues. Bury me next to Mom... Indianapolis. I ain't never going back to prison alive. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Dillinger Gang facing death as states act declares a Chicago Tribune headline January 27th, 1934. Ohio has capital cases against Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark for Sheriff Sarber's death during the Lima jailbreak. Meanwhile, when Dillinger was arrested in Arizona, he was found with several $5 bills linking him to the East Chicago robbery, putting him at the scene of Officer O'Malley's killing. This means facing a death sentence in Indiana. So, it's a good thing for John Dillinger he's escaped again. Hours after busting out of Crown Point Jail, Dillinger meets up with his girlfriend, Evelyn Billy Frechette, whom he had begun a relationship with in November 1933. Soon after the lovers reunite, a grand jury indicts him, and the Bureau of Investigation, which later becomes the FBI, declares a nationwide manhunt for Dillinger. Elliot J. Gorn is a historian and author of Dillinger's Wild Ride, the year that made America's public enemy number one.
1: When he broke out of the Crown Point jail in March of 1934, he was beholden to many people, for example, in the town of East Chicago, Illinois, these corrupt towns on the border between Chicago, on the Indiana-Illinois border. So he had made many enemies because people knew who he was. If they assisted him, they were liable in court. So there was that, of course. His big enemies were in the federal government, finally. Dillinger really humiliated the FBI repeatedly. That's not what he was intending to do. He was just intending to stay free. The lovers flee to the Twin Cities
0: and hunker down at the Santa Monica Apartments in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dillinger reunites with John Red Hamilton, Aside from Homer, Van Meter, and Dillinger himself, the rest of the original gang are imprisoned and awaiting trial. They've little choice but to reorganize with new gang members, so they throw in their lot with another notorious outlaw, Babyface Nelson, along with his
1: associates Tommy Carroll and Eddie Green. When Dillinger gets out of the Crown Point Jail, he's already pretty famous by this point. And of course, there are others who are robbing banks in the Middle West. We don't know exactly how he gets in touch with other seasoned criminals, bank robbers, but he does. And most notably, one who is truly a sociopath, Babyface Nelson, who had been around and who really likes violence, it seems. He becomes part of the new Dillinger gang and others. Remember that most of the old Dillinger gang had been sent to Lima, Ohio, where they stand trial for the murder of the local sheriff, and they are executed for it. So that Dillinger gang is mostly gone. There's a few others who escaped to show up But it's basically a new gang. Exactly how it came together, who knows? They certainly didn't take out an ad in the paper. There was no, you know, uh, John Dillinger seeks big-time bank robbers for gang activity. Nothing like that. There's an underworld where people find each other. Places where they know others of like mind collect and ways of getting in touch with each other that way.
2: I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home.
0: Not wasting any time, a short three days after Dillinger's escape from Crown Point, the new gang robs a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Then, a week later, the crew robs First National Bank in Mason City, Iowa. Just 10 days after the Crown Point breakout, Dillinger's new gang has stolen more than $100,000. It's become a national crime wave, and it finally draws a national response.
1: After he breaks out of the Crown Point Jail in March, it becomes, because he rides across state lines, becomes a federal case, the FBI is after him, and he escapes and escapes and escapes. And this is humiliating. This is huge national news. So who are Dillinger's enemies? Well, Jade Edgar Hoover is a pretty serious enemy.
0: FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover contacts Melvin Purvis, the special agent in charge of the Chicago office. Purvis is young, independently wealthy, good-looking, and often seen as a ladies' man. Hoover has been reluctant for his agency to lead the difficult manhunt for Dillinger and his gang, preferring to aid local law enforcement. But with so much negative publicity for the authorities and so much positive press for the criminals the feds can't ignore the dillinger gang any longer
1: the hunt is on melvin purvis is more of an office agent than anything else finally when it comes time to try to get dillinger when there's good evidence of where he'll be when Hoover has put together a group of federal agents. We're not the usual ones in the Chicago office. They're guys who have managed to bring down and kill other criminals in the past. There are several federal agents there in Chicago with a reputation for shooting first and asking questions later.
0: Soon, Dillinger and Billy Freshette are on the move again. On March twentieth, 1934, they move into the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul, Minnesota, and go by the aliases Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman. But the outlaws don't keep a particularly low profile. It seems they tussle with the need to avoid arrest and the pride of being celebrity criminals. The landlady observes the couple closely and becomes suspicious. On March 30th, she goes to the FBI's St. Paul field office and files a report highlighting that the couple have a brand-new Hudson sedan parked in the garage behind the apartments.
1: He likes being the center of attention. He likes being occasionally interviewed. He must have loved seeing himself when he'd go to a movie, the newsreels before a film where they're showing the news of the day. And here's a story on the Dillinger gang. And there he is on the big screen. He must have loved that. There was talk that he wanted to, toward the end of his life, that he wanted to help make a film about himself. So yeah, he was not one to, he was certainly not one to always be careful. After Crown Point, so he knew that he had to keep a low profile to stay safe. No, he hated keeping a low profile and loved fame, wanted to be known. That's really clear. He loved the limelight.
0: Dillinger and Fresette stay in hiding for two weeks. They never use the front door. They keep their blinds shut. But they come and go at all hours of the night. But the watchful landlady reports everything to the police and eventually gets two agents to visit Dillinger and Frechette's apartment. It's just after 10 a.m. on March 31st, 1934. Mr. Hellman? A man's voice calls out from the dreary hallway. Billy opens the door just as far as the chain will give and peers out at the two men standing before her, one big, one small, both wearing dark suit jackets and hats, cops. She warily assesses them and pulls her bathrobe a little tighter. Mr. Hellman's out. Come back this afternoon, she says curtly and begins to shut the door when the big man places his boot into the doorframe, keeping it ajar. May we come in and speak to you, he asks politely. Um, I'm not dressed, Billy spits out. But you can wait. By chance, at the opposite end of the hallway, Homer Van Meter, one of the Dillinger gang, happens to come up the stairs. Billy shuts the door. The clicking of the deadbolt lock echoes in the hallway. The two men share a look. They're prepared to wait, but now spot Homer Van Meter standing at the top of the stairs. Hey, who the hell are you? The big man shouts. Sensing danger, Van Meter comes up with something on the fly. I'm a soap salesman, he says. The big man challenges him to produce his samples. Backing away, Van Meter casually responds that he must have left them down in the car. Now, the small man pipes up. Hey, you got identification. Van Meter stays calm. That's down in the car too. I'll go and get it. The men watch Van Meter descend the stairs. The big man decides to follow him. But when he gets down to the building's entrance, Van Meter is nowhere to be seen. That is until he turns around. Stunned, the federal agent stands motionless. Van Meter is behind him crouched beneath the staircase, gun drawn. Van Meter fires first, but somehow misses. Bolting toward the exit, the big man sprints out the door and across the grass, looking for cover in front of the building. Van Meter is hot on his tail, firing wildly after him. But a third officer waiting outside the building now opens fire bullets ricochet in the doorway, forcing Van Meter to retreat back inside, where he disappears. For a moment, there's an uneasy silence. Until the rattle of machine gun fire is heard coming from inside the apartment building, followed by the sound of a pistol returning fire. Seconds later, The small man also comes hurtling out of the entrance like a bat out of hell running for his life. He too takes cover. All is quiet, deathly quiet, eerily quiet. Birds chirp, the breeze blows through the trees. When the big man hears a car start in the back of the building, they're getting away. He sprints down the alley toward the sound of the car to find the two lovers making their escape. Billy drives and looks back, giving him a wink and a smile, while Dillinger flicks his cigarette away casually as if this were just another trip to the market. The big man raises his revolver and attempts to get a few shots off before the car turns from the alley onto the street. But he misses. John Dillinger evades the FBI once again. Or should we say, Mr. and Mrs. Carl Hellman do.
1: One of the things about the relationship of Billy and John Dillinger was they had a couple of really pretty amazing escapes from the law together, just the two of them. Here in Chicago, John Dillinger early on went to, he needed to go to the dentist and they drive out Irving Park Road And somehow the local police, there was a John Dillinger squad pretty early on, caught wind of this and directed a couple of plainclothes cars near where Billy Frechette was waiting in the car for John to come out. When he came out, she apparently had figured out something was up. What were these cars doing here? And he backs out, immediately backs into a driveway versus where he would be going and just starts racing down Irving Park back toward the lake, chased by two police cars. But there were Bullets flying, certainly bullets from the police and and bullet holes on the Dillinger car, which they abandoned when they did make it to safety. That wasn't the only time that happened. A little while later in St. Paul, Minnesota, they seem to be a nice young couple staying in a quiet street, the Lincoln Court Apartments, and the police get wind of where they are. And this one involves Billy's in the car behind the wheel. And Dillinger comes out just after her out of the apartment, blasting away with a submachine gun. He gets slightly wounded and she does the driving out of there. And again, they manage to escape. So if that's not love, what is?
0: J. Edgar Hoover sees red when he learns of the details of the St. Paul escape. Dillinger not only fired at the federal officers, but he humiliated the Bureau. In some 20 years of the existence of this division, Hoover rants. No one has ever shot at any of our agents and got away with it. We run them to the earth. Hoover knows that the Bureau's reputation now depends on catching John Dillinger once and for all. He orders four dozen more men to St. Paul and tells Melvin Purvis to focus all of his efforts there. Hoover offers a $5,000 reward for information leading to Dillinger's capture and gives orders to start intimidating any possible informants. He demands results.
1: The feds are paying attention to the Dillinger gang, to the spate of robberies in the Middle West and so on. But their hand isn't really forced until until Dillinger becomes so famous when he escapes from Crown Point, the attorney general gets involved and then one robbery after another going forward through the spring and the escape. That's when Hoover increasingly is not just angry, but panicked that, again, his whole bureau was being made to look bad. All of this talk of scientific policing and so on is for not these guys. escaping and escaping. So the further you go into this story, the more difficult this gets for the feds. They look worse and worse.
0: It's April 9th, 1934, Chicago. Billy Frechette arranges a meeting at the Austin State Tavern with her ex-boyfriend, Larry Strong, to ask about a secure hideout for the gang. Frechette and Strong sit at the bar, eating and drinking, when suddenly, agents come bursting in from the front, the rear, all sides. Dillinger, who's standing some way off, lowers his head and coolly walks outside and sits in his car. The agents approach Billy, question her, and promptly arrest her. Dillinger calmly sits in the car as the agents bring a handcuffed Frechette out, but he sees that she's been pinched, so they share a look, and then he drives away. The two lovers will never see each other again.
1: Billy Frechette was captured by the feds about a month or so after the escaped from St. Paul, and there were always stories that Dillinger wanted to somehow seize her from the federal agents, from break her out of prison. I think he would have if he thought he could have. I think he was talked out of it. I think it it would have been impossible. But yeah, I do think it was the kind of romantic gesture that people at least believed he would do, and I think he probably would try to do.
0: Billy Frechette's arrest is a blow to Dillinger, and he becomes despondent. But Billy is loyal to him until the end. The FBI interrogates her under bright lights and deprives her of food and sleep. But she betrays no significant information about the gang.
1: I do believe John Dillinger really loved Billy Frechette, or at least thought he did. As I say, he was a bit of a fabulist. He could fall for people. He really did. Again, from all the descriptions in his letters, he could become very enamored of women, but they were close. They were genuinely together in this. So yeah, I think whatever that means, I think they genuinely loved each other, absolutely.
0: When Dillinger hears about Billy's mistreatment by the feds, he becomes enraged, but is powerless to do anything. He's also powerless to aid his friends back in Ohio, Former gang members Pierpont, Makeley, and Clark are convicted for Sheriff Sarber's murder. Pierpont and Makeley are sentenced to die in the electric chair, and Clark is destined to serve a life term. Fueled with murderous rage, Dillinger and Van Meter take a hostage, an Indiana police officer, and march him at gunpoint into the police station where they steal guns and bulletproof vests then flee to a small vacation lodge called Little Bohemia in Wisconsin. But once again, the feds are in hot pursuit. Special Agent Melvin Purvis is in charge. They think they have the building surrounded when, once again, Dillinger and co. make their escape. The agents open fire and a getaway driver is killed. Dillinger and the rest of the gang return fire from the lodge, but in the exchange, Dillinger slips the net, and the gang split up, once again humiliating Melvin Purvis, J. Edgar Hoover, and the FBI.
1: John Dillinger absolutely made a mockery of Melvin Purvis, and actually of J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover could have lost his job very easily, mostly because of Dillinger slipping through his fingers over and over again. He was in jeopardy of losing his job. The Bureau was part of the Justice Department. The Attorney General was becoming increasingly angry about this. Crime really was a big political issue then, as now. Dillinger, in some ways, was the face of what became known as the New Deal on Crime, a series of laws passed by Congress, signed by the president, to stop this wave of crime with Dillinger. I mean, there was other crime, of course, a lot of it, but Dillinger sort of became the poster boy for it. On the
0: run again, Dillinger flees to Chicago to lie low. For a while, he succeeds, until authorities eventually discover Dillinger's bloodied getaway car on a Chicago side street. With the heat closing in, Dillinger expresses an interest in plastic surgery If only he could change his look enough, then he and Billy can hide in plain sight and live happily ever after once he breaks her out of jail. It's a fine line between bold and delusional, and Johnny Dillinger is right on the
1: edge. He has plastic surgery. He agrees to have plastic surgery to change his look. And this is connected in a way to the First World War. Because of all of the carnage of the war, plastic surgery had developed, uh, at least in some crude ways, where you really could try to reconstruct people's faces and so on. So it was not common by any means, but it was not unique either. But literally in a back room, a surgeon who was himself in trouble with the law was willing to perform this surgery. Actually, Dillinger was over anesthetized and he could have died from that. But they did the surgery. It didn't change his look that much. Toward in the last month or two, he grew a mustache, wore glasses, changed the color of his hair, and then a couple of small moles were removed. They changed his look a little bit, but he was recognizable still. Still. But it was, it was certainly an unusual thing to do, to have, uh, to have plastic surgery. He thought he looked completely different. And being who he was as a person, he acted as if he was invisible.
0: It's hard to gauge Dillinger's grip on reality. Did he really think he was invisible? Did he really want to quietly slip away and retire? We'll never know. What we do know is that before too long, he locks eyes with Rita Polly Hamilton, a teenage runaway from Fargo, North Dakota, who happens to look exactly like Billy Frechette. Little did Dillinger know that Hamilton would be his undoing. Or more precisely, he'd be undone by the mutual friend who introduces them, Anna Sage, also known as the Lady
1: in Red. We know he met her, Polly Hamilton, his last girlfriend, through the Lady in Red. The Lady in Red was a woman named Anna Campanus, better known as Anna Sage. She was a Romanian immigrant who ran brothels in the Gary, Indiana, South Chicago. Again, that borderland between Indiana and Chicago that was very working class, very rough around the edges, a lot of crime, a lot of organized crime. We're not sure exactly how he met her, maybe going to one of her brothels. She became his friend, and toward the end, in July of 1934, she owned an apartment building on Halstead in Chicago, and there was an alleyway that led right from Halstead, right through to Lincoln Avenue, right to the Biograph Theater, literally just a couple of blocks.
0: Polly Hamilton's roommate, Anna, is a Romanian immigrant who's facing deportation for low moral character, She offers the feds information on Dillinger's whereabouts in exchange for help with her immigration status. She reveals that Dillinger and Polly have plans to see a movie the following day.
1: When John Dillinger and Polly Hamilton and Anna Sage came out of the Biograph Theater, On July 22nd, Melvin Purvis told his agents that when he lit a cigar, that would be the sign to close in. So the theater is is emptying and out walks John Dillinger with these two women. Anna Sage had told him she'd be wearing a, uh, well, what she was wearing, in fact, was an orange colored skirt. She described what she would wear. She became forever after known as the woman in red or the lady in red. So Purvis lights a cigar. Now, as I say, there are several agents right around there, who start to follow Dillinger, follow behind him.
0: It's 10.20 p.m. on July 22nd, 1934, on a sultry summer's night in front of the Biograph Theatre. The marquee brightly boasts of Manhattan melodrama starring Clark Gable. The audience slowly trickles out of the theatre, coming back into reality, wafting their shirts and fanning their faces. Melvin Purvis stands by the ticket booth with a cigar hanging from his mouth as patrons fan out all around him. Then, a few feet away, Purvis's eyes latch onto Dillinger, casually walking out, discussing the film with Polly Hamilton on his left arm and Anna Sage beside her. Purvis lights his cigar, a signal to his men hiding out on the street that Dillinger is in the crowd. As the stream of moviegoers thins, trickling down Lincoln Boulevard, Dillinger, Hamilton, and Sage walk right past two FBI agents who fall in step behind them. Another agent links eyes with his comrades and follows at a short distance. Sensing something off, Dillinger looks behind him and sees the three men, and he knows instantly what is happening. He crouches and breaks free of Hamilton and Sage and sprints toward the alley, reaching into his pocket for a gun. With their guns at the ready, the three FBI agents fire six shots at the fleeing Dillinger, who makes it into the alley. Two bullets graze him, and another bullet strikes him on his left side. Dillinger feels the thump, the telltale sting of the bullet's impact. His hand goes to his side. As he spins to return fire, another bullet strikes him. The fatal shot enters his neck. It destroys the vertebra at the top of his spinal cord, crashes into the lower part of his brain and exits just below his right eye. Dillinger stumbles a few more steps forward and crashes face first onto the concrete in the desolate, lonely alleyway, blood pooling around his head.
1: Hoover, as I mentioned, created the special task force to get Dillinger. And I don't think that the special task force is the reason that the FBI got Dillinger. They were there to shoot him. Let me just go back and say something I think is an important part of this. After Dillinger died, and for a couple of years after, the FBI used the Dillinger story as kind of their founding mythology. The name had changed just around that time from the Bureau of Investigation to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. During the Dillinger era, agents were routinely armed. They hadn't been before. and Hoover put out a lot of propaganda, you could call it, or or at the very least, advertising of how it was good police work that brought down Dillinger and there would be news reels before movies talking about ballistics, forensic science, uh, fingerprints, and that sort of thing. Well, what really got Dillinger was snitches. What really got Dillinger was the old style of pressuring people that they would be in trouble if they didn't rat him out. And that's exactly what happened. Yes, there were these agents who were there ready to shoot Dillinger when they identified him. But more important, they knew where he was going to be because he was, as they say, ratted out. And, and that was that was a big part of police work. Not clean and scientific, but it was what led to Dillinger's downfall.
0: The reaction to John Dillinger's death is mixed. Obviously, some celebrate, some are relieved, but many are saddened that the adventure is over. After all, he's the nation's criminal son, and not short of admirers. As many surviving letters reveal... I am for John Dillinger. Of course, I'm glad Johnny got away. I'm tickled to death. The whole United States is glad. Everybody was for him. Dillinger didn't rob poor people. He robbed those who became rich by robbing the poor. I'm for
1: Johnny. I don't see John Dillinger as a villain or a hero or a misguided man. I'm a historian for a living. I see him as emblematic of an era, not necessarily in a very good way, but sometimes in a a really revealing way, that here's America coming out of the 1920s, an era of prosperity and of the beginnings of consumer culture, radios and cars. People owned cars by the end of the 20s, average people. Movies, an era of spectacular, well, spectacles, of shows. Dillinger spends all of that in prison and then comes out to find this changed world in the 1930s, and I think his story really is a story about the 20s leading into the Great Depression, of American promise, again, prosperity, just betrayed by the Great Depression, by this terrible economic calamity. And I think his story is somehow about that, that it's, that it's the way of thinking about that era in American history.
0: America's public enemy number one, finally has the death everyone was waiting for, the death his growing mythology demanded. Running from the law, gun in his hand, he dies in public, and yet he's all alone. Was he undone by the woman he loved? Or just betrayed by his own lust for fame and fortune? Perhaps it's the death he'd imagined, too. Next time on Real Outlaws, it's the swinging 60s. London is the center of glitz and glamor, home to celebrities, pop music, and fashion. But beneath the glittering surface of the city lies another, much darker place. A world of violence, vengeance, and vice. These twin realities collide with the criminal empire of the Cray brothers. Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Good old East End boys looking after their own, or vicious thugs who will stop at nothing to get what they want. Find out next time on Real Outlaws.